Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. We are honored tonight to have with us two-time Emmy-nominated television, film, and Broadway stage actress, Constance Towers. So memorable from so many classic performances and in films, including The Horse Soldiers, The Naked Kiss, Shock Corridor, and Sergeant Rutledge. Welcome, Connie. Well, thank you so much. It's nice to hear your voice. I, I, I'm still trying to figure out how you don't have a Southern, answer, a southern accent because I... Oh, honey, honey, I can do that accent right now. Would you like it? Hannah, Would you like the Hannah, Hannah Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I grew up with Hannah Hunter, and we'll certainly get into that later. I have to talk, since I have you on this uh, wonderful podcast, I feel like I'm in the presence of, of, of cinema royalty and Broadway royalty. I'm curious oh, what boy, you You think. have that wrong. <laughs> I'm curious what you think of entertainment today, because I have a big bone to pick with Hollywood. I find that so much stuff is so dark and so depressing. And I'm not saying that these aren't good films and shows, but I feel like the word entertainment has gone through a certain just kind of a a change. And I, I look back to some of the films and shows in the past, and I felt that our hearts were lighter then, perhaps? Well, don't you think our hearts were lighter? You know, they always say art is a reflection of life or is reflecting life. Uh, life is dark today. And I couldn't agree with you more. I love Gene Kelly and hearing singing and singing in the rain and being entertained, as you say. That's a, You go to see a Broadway show today, you're assaulted by sound used to be that the human voice was trained to project and today i mean they make the the stage come alive with sound just by pushing a button and it's usually too loud so i i think all of entertainment has changed drastically and i hear so many people say if only we could go back to 1950, 1960, life was simple then. And I think it was simpler. You know, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers and Zoom calls and things that, that it was it was in person. You got to meet people. And, and if, when you went to the movies, as you say, you were entertained. You went to a Broadway show. You walked out, there was something, a song you could hum. And maybe you'd hear it on the radio the next day and recognize it. So it doesn't as a, happen anymore. As a little girl growing up in Montana, did the family go to the movies much? Were the movies a thing? Oh, movies were a big treat. We had one movie theater. So what came every two weeks or whenever the movies changed was a big occasion. And some people could afford it, and some people couldn't. And it was, uh, oh, it was wonderful. And you had movie stars. You had, I mean, who's a movie star today? You look at very few people. Tom Cruise, I mean, he's a real star. But where are the John Waynes? Where are the William Holdens, the Gary Coopers, the Cary Grants? Uh, well, when it, when it, when, the, just, when the studio system uh, broke apart when all the contracts uh, lapsed. And I think the studios no longer had con actors under contract. What went with that was the whole mm -hmm. system of of nurturing and, and grooming talent and exactly. creating stars. Sure. When I first went to Columbia Pictures, uh, Harry Cohn, I, I had to go before the owner of the studio and sing and do a scene. I was lucky enough that they gave me a young actor they had under contract to read the scene with, and his name was Jack Lemon. Uh, 
And Mr. Cohn decided to sign me. He didn't do a screen test. And I was under contract at the studio. So every day I had a schedule. I went to Culver City to a Maestro Chapro, and the head of the music department drove me there to make sure I got there all right and delivered me to take a singing lesson. And then I had a drama coach and a speech coach and a comportment coach, dances. And Bob Fosse happened to be the dance teacher for me. Uh, so you, you were nurtured, cared for, and prepared for what was coming. Today, these poor kids are thrown into it, and they're, they're in a leading role, and they don't even know where the camera is. It's so true. It's so, so true. The, the, whole yeah, infra- so the, whole, the whole infrastructure of Hollywood has changed. Um, uh, oh, yeah. The other thing that um, I'm curious about... Um, is uh, rudeness. I feel, and again, you always hear over the years, there's there's always rude people in any business, but in, in show business of late, people have just become more rude than ever. And I was wondering, when you were first coming up in the 50s, uh, did you find that the small town atmosphere of Hollywood had a little more dignity about it, or was it still kind of oh, a... Absolutely. 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 People gave you respect. And because you were someone that they were interested in, they were they were building you toward what they termed stardom or whatever, but they took care of you. And they did treat you with respect. They treated you with dignity. You were, you know, part of their system. And uh, I don't feel that today at all. In fact, I walked into a, a room full of producers on a roll about a year ago, and I walked in and they were all sitting, lounging on couches. No one got up. And I looked at them and I said, oh, please don't get up. And they kind of got it. But of course, I didn't get the part either. <laughs> it's a little pathetic. I was, now, I, I assume... Well, I was assume... too smart. I assume that you going over to meet with Bob Fosse, was that for your first role in this movie called Bring Your Smile Along? Yes. Well, he and Gwen Verdon were there at the studio, and they took me into a dance studio to see if I could dance. And I was sort of put to a test in this room that had, you know, bars around the walls, and it was a dance studio. And, uh, and I didn't even know who they were. Miss Whitefish, Montana. I'd never heard of them. And they were so nice. They were darling with me. And I couldn't dance very well, but I still got the part. But so, and when I when I went yes. No, go ahead, go ahead. Well, when I when I went to meet with Mr. Cohn, uh originally and, and Blake Edwards was the director, writer, and uh I can't remember. Oh, Joni Taps was the producer. And so anyway, they, they they knew I was going to go meet Mr. Cohn and all of the people involved in the production. So they sent me to the designer, Jean-Louis, to put me in a proper dress. So I didn't, didn't go into my jeans with big holes in them. I went in in a lovely dress and I did go to the barbershop where, where Mr. Cohn was having his hair cut. And they were all sitting around, you know, at his feet. But I went in and met everyone, and they all stood up. I don't think Mr. Cohn got out of the barber chair, but everybody else did. So, I mean, it was it was a totally different time. So, and you, you a different get, experience. You get a contract from Columbia Pictures, which was probably play, paying you fairly minimum numbers. Do they also provide you with a living allowance, or is that your own responsibility? With a living, in other words, I apart, didn't... apartment, you know, food, all that. Oh no, no, they paid you a salary, and then you went out and found your apartment, and you paid your rent, you paid for your food, but God. they they made sure you were all right if you had a problem. At Columbia Pictures, if you had a problem, you picked up the telephone, and then it was a dial 
phone where you put your finger in the dial and went around the circle. And if you dialed zero, you got Harry Cohn. And if you had, if you did that, you had to have something important to say, but you could call him on the phone. I wouldn't know who to call today. Oh, just who try call, call? D- just try calling a Disney executive. You get the theme park in Orlando. Oh, that's true. <laughs> it's 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 kind of it's a strange. You get Mickey Mouse. <laughs> it's a bit strange, but. Um... You know, uh, it, it's just the way things are. Communication, it's funny because we're living in the communication age where everything is so accessible in some ways, but so un- inaccessible in others. Um, yeah. So you are starting to work in Hollywood. Uh, and were you known at the time and when you first started as more of a singer? Were you more apt to be doing musicals than dramatic parts? Oh, I was very much known as a singer. I started, just happened to be walking down Fifth Avenue with an agent, and I was at Juilliard studying. And uh, a man walked up to us and said, can she sing? And the agent said, sure, she can can do anything. And typical agent. And so this happened to be Pierre Boultink, who was the manager of the St. Regis Hotel. And he said, all right. You'll open in the Maisonette five weeks from now. And that's how I got my first job, that he just hired me on the street and trusted. And uh, so I opened as a singer, as a cabaret singer at the at the St. Regis Hotel. I didn't know what I was doing, but that was when the opening night, then the casting head of Columbia Pictures was Max Arno was in the audience. And he came to me afterward and said, I want to fly you to California to meet Harry Cohn and have a screen test. I think you should go to Hollywood. So when I finished my engagement, they flew me to California. That's when I met Jack Lemmon, when I performed the scene and sang a song for Mr. Cohn, and he signed me to a contract. How How exciting must that have been? Well, you know... It's been like that my whole career. I've just been the luckiest person in the world. I've been in the right place at the right time. And I've had people like John Ford, John Wayne, William Holden, uh, Richard Rogers on Broadway, uh, George Abbott on Broadway, people who just put their arms around my shoulders and with great dignity, respect, and love have helped me have a career. Well, so I, I got to be more lucky. I got to tell you that when I was 17, I bought my friend's tape recorder. And I started to put the little microphone next to the television. And I just loved these movies so much that I was watching on TV. I wanted to keep them. And this is long before VHS cassettes and DVDs. And this is the 60s. Right. So one of the first movies... I recorded was a movie I had not seen in the theaters, but I'd seen on television several times, which is The Horse Soldiers. And of course, mm-hmm. tell 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 us how that came to, how did you come to be cast as Ms. Hannah Hunter? Well, again, somebody had their arm around my shoulder, but um, I left Columbia Pictures. I put my finger in that telephone one day after I had talked to my agents and my manager, and I said, I really feel like I've made this one movie and I'm just sitting here. And of course, the impatience of youth, uh, I wasn't willing to sit there and wait. And so I said, I'd like to get out of my contract. And today they would send in an army of agents to do that for you. But then I went to the studio and I put my finger in the zero and took the phone dial around and a voice answered and it was Harry Cohn. I told him who it was and that I would like to come see him and that I had something I wanted to discuss with him. So he gave me a time and a date and I went to see him. I walked into his office and he was he, he was not the most polite man, but he was he was real. I mean, he was he was who he was. A lot of people thought he was rude, and he called me by my last name. He didn't he didn't say Miss Towers. He just said 
Towers. And he said, Towers, sit down. And I said, no, I would rather stand if you don't mind. What I have to say is brief, but it's very important to me. And so he said, what is it? So I told him that I felt that I I didn't see that I had a future at the studio. I didn't see any plans for another movie and that I really would like to go out and continue working and, and learning my craft. And so he heard me out and he had my contract on his desk and he looked at it and he said, well, I reviewed this and I'm going to let you go. So I turned around to walk out. And as I got to the door, I said, I turned and said, thank you, Mr. Cohn. And he said, thank you for what? And I said, well, you gave me a straight answer. I now know that you had no plans for me because I know you're such a good businessman. You wouldn't have let me go. And he looked at me and he said, but thank you. And I walked out. So I went back to New York and opened in the plaza in the Persian room as a chanteuse. And that night, Martin Rackin, who was one of the producers of The Horse Soldiers, and he was out on a tour looking for an unknown personality, somebody they could introduce as a new young star. And uh, he came to me after my show and said he would like to fly me to California to meet with John Ford. So they flew me out and I went to John Ford's office and sat down and was interviewed by him. Couldn't have been nicer. Uh, He was, of course, it was helpful that my father was born in Ireland. It did give us something personal to talk about. Uh, Then he arranged for a screen test, which I took. And uh, then I, I just was the happy recipient of of the role. Now you, the, you arranged for a, a screen test. Do you remember who you did your screen test with? You know, I don't recall. I don't I don't remember the screen test. I couldn't even tell you what I did. But it was a scene, obviously, but I don't know who I did it with. But it wasn't Jack Lemon. <laughs> uh and tell tell me your impression of Ford. I mean Ford uh uh, it seems to be from various people's recollections, kind of a, a kind of a growling bear type of a man. But uh, did you find him to be a pleasant man? I found him to be an absolutely dear, wonderful, lovable person who was mischievous. He reminded me of my grandmother. He was so Irish. He loved to stir the pot. Somebody was always in trouble. And he loved that. He just couldn't stand it if things were going right. Uh, with me, he had a sense of humor. He was helpful. I, I'm very disappointing to talk to about John Ford because he played pranks on people. And he played pranks on me. But he was there for you when you needed him. And when he was directing, if you just kept your eye on him, he showed you exactly what he wanted. Uh, and I really was green. I really was inexperienced, but he was wonderful, and he and he had a great sense of humor. But some people chose to think he was a curmudgeon, but I did not see that. So and John is... Wayne loved him. Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, they had such a relationship, and Duke really, John John Wayne really wanted to please his coach. And that was John Ford. And if John Ford told him that was a good scene, or even he he completed one scene and he was wonderful in it, and I happened to be standing there as the, the one actor in the scene, and afterward, Pappy Ford just lifted the patch on his eye and he winked at Duke and he said, your son must have helped you with that one. Well, that was his way of complimenting him, you know, and telling him that was good. And the effect on John Wayne was wonderful. It was like his coach said, "You did the touchdown, and you were perfect." You're so, you're a, he, you're a, a fairly tall woman. You're uh, what five nine? I'm, if I I'm not quite that anymore. I'm about five eight, but if I wear high heels, I'm five ten, 
five eleven. Right. So having a leading man like John Wayne, I would think, would be uh, appropriate. Um, uh, you spend a lot of time with the Duke. He's either hugging you or strangling you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that one scene where he's trying to keep you quiet by the riverbank as the Confederate cavalry is slowly singing their way across the river uh, was pretty right. intense. Uh, I, I know the movie encyclopedically. In fact, I even know the little bloopers, uh, which have something to do with the script. Um, uh, and it's military parlance. It has nothing to do with your performance. Uh, there's just mm -hmm. a, there's just a scene where Willis Bushy, who you recall, the wonderful character actor, right. plays oh, yeah. Colonel Secord. He gets upset when they're all hiding in the bushes while that Confederate cavalry is marching past. And he finally says to John Wayne before they take their positions, he says, why don't you stand and fight? You've got a full brigade. But if you'd been following the movie as as carefully as I had been following it, when they get first attacked before they meet you, he sends one of his regiments back north. So he only has two out of the three regiments. A brigade consists of three regiments. So uh, that was a little uh, little yeah. faux pas, and that, that's that's kind of digging down very deep. Now, um, aren't you wonderful? My gosh, to be able to go into that detail—that's incredible. <laughs> Some people I'm would think it was, <laughs> some people might think it's it's a little too much. But in any case, that's much I, I I love the movie uh, for many reasons. Um, and then of course your other leading man is William Holden, uh, certainly at the mm -hmm. top of his game at the time. In fact, uh, the star power on this movie was pretty much off the charts. Tell me your impressions of Bill. Well, Bill was very different than Duke. Duke, Duke would stand out. He would talk with the with the fans if they came to. We were in Natchitoches, Louisiana, and it was just a little four corners with a with a highway going by, and there was a stoplight. And on one corner was a service station. On the other corner was a restaurant, and then the motel on the other side of the street where we all stayed. And uh, Duke would stand out there in the afternoon talked to his fans, young people. He gave them advice about their family life. He was wonderful. Bill Holden was the opposite. Bill Holden, and he told me, he said, my job, what I signed to do is on the screen. I did not sign to sign, sign up to sign autographs or have to stand on the corner and talk to people. That's not what I do. And so I thought it was very interesting. They they came from totally different sets of mind about what their job was and what they did. He was very polite, very nice, but he just did not sign autographs and he didn't stand and chat with people. Well, uh, Connie, so, what was the name of the town you were living in? Natchitoches. It looks like Natchitoches. N-A-T-I-C-H-O-T-C-H-E-S, I think. Got it. And were you there the whole time or did you guys move around? Yes. No, we, well, we were there not the entire time. We went to Mississippi. Can't tell you where we were in Mississippi. But it was where there are, are homes that are, are tourist attractions in Mississippi. There's a place. Natchez. Natchez, Mississippi? I sure. can't remember. Sure, of um, course. But I remember that there was a big party one night when we got there. We were only there for like a week of shooting. And uh, But Hannah's home was in Natchitoches, Louisiana. And that's where all of that was shot. And the swamps, riding the horses through the swamps and all of that, that was around Natchitoches. And then we went to Mississippi and they had a party one night, and there were these southern ladies. There were like three or four of them, like the club ladies, with lovely rising bosoms and tiny waists. And, and they were probably, they seemed like elderly women to me, and they were probably 30, 35 <laughs> years old. Um, but they, these three women, had John Ford backed up into a corner, and they kind of had dressed their 
those ample bosoms were resting on his chest. And they were just <laughs> they were just talking to him. And you know, everything in the Southern they, they always end everything with a question. You are so handsome. Aren't you beautiful? And so I walked up and I I thought maybe he needs rescuing these women had him backed up. And I went over and I said, could I get you to come with me and get some coffee or something? He said, I'll talk to you later. Yes, my dear. What were you saying? He wasn't the least bit interested in me. He was enjoying <laughs> that to be interested. But these Southern ladies were just having their way with him. And he well, was they were kind it. of play they were kind of playing their own little Hannah Hunters. That's right. Exactly. They were so doing that. Little Miss Montana. <laughs> Whitefish Montana didn't get that. So. Now your your home, uh, uh, Greenbrier, uh, the interior of yes. your home was that back in L.A. on a soundstage, or did you also shoot that back east? We shot some of that in the house, and oh. uh, then we came back and they had built the interiors here at the Goldwyn Studio. So we shot all the 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 majority of the interiors were shot in Hollywood. And a lot of that was because Althea Gibson, who played my my maid, Lukey, she couldn't go with us. She wasn't allowed in 1959 to go to Louisiana. She couldn't stay at our hotel. She couldn't be there. So we had to shoot everything of hers in Hollywood. So when-, when Pretty she- shocking. Yeah, that's it's just so shocking about those times. Yeah, um, you hear a lot, lot about that. So when she's riding horses with you, she's not in that's Louisiana. Uh-uh. No, that was in her grave site when she died, when she was shot. That was all shot here. Right. And I right. don't know. That's- that's I guess that's not very surprising for the times, but she was she was terrific yeah. in her her first role. And I thought you guys played yeah. very well together. Oh, I loved her. We stayed friends forever. And she was lovely and went through a lot. You know, she didn't have an easy life. Now, being a, a young woman from Montana, I assume you had been on a horse before. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank heaven. Uh, my grandfather gave me a horse and gave my sister a horse also without a saddle. And he said, when you can learn to ride it without the saddle, I will buy you the saddle. So we learned, we really learned how to ride. And I was so grateful for that. But I had never heard of a side saddle. I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't know anything about it. And John Ford asked me in that meeting that I had with him, he said, do you ride side saddle? And I said, of course. And he, my grandmother always told me, you know, it, it, nothing is impossible. It just takes a little longer. So I thought, I don't know what that is, but I'll find out. So he left and he said, well, we'll find out if you can ride side saddle. Uh, I'll have you come to my ranch tomorrow and uh, we'll have the stuntmen put you through your paces and so on. So I said, fine, I'll, I'll be there. And I walked out thinking, oh, what have I done to myself? So I came home and I looked in the telephone book and I went to the yellow pages. And lucky Connie, I found a lady who advertised side saddle and she taught it. So I called her and I told her exactly what I had done. And I said, I am just in a terrible situation and I have to be able to ride on a side saddle tomorrow. She said, come on out here. So she was on Riverside Drive somewhere over there. And I went to her and we worked until like 10 o'clock that night, mounting, dismounting, uh, going in, in the circle, in the, in, the, in the ring and doing various figure eights and things that they would be asking me to do the next day. Fortunately, I knew how to ride a horse. So I just had to master that side saddle, mounting it and sitting as you sit, you know, kind of catawampus because you're sitting on one side of the horse and there's a big horn 
on it that you wrap your leg around. And I actually felt almost more secure on the side saddle than I did in an English saddle. Um, so anyway, the next day I went out to his ranch. The stuntmen were waking, waiting for me, and they had those wonderful movie horses that, you know, they, they hear what the director wants, and they take you where the director wants you to go. They know more than you know. <laughs> and they put aside, they really do. You know, a director will say, you're going down here and you take a, you, I want you to go off camera left and do this. Well, if you just let the reins go, the horse goes exactly where it's supposed to go. They understand, they get it. Um, anyway, so I went through all the paces with the stuntmen and I got through all of that. And my first day on location, when I arrived there, I walked up and they were all John Wayne, William Holden, John Ford, the cast, uh, the crew. They were all sitting out in a field at picnic tables having lunch when I arrived. And so I had to walk up and I, that's rather an awesome experience to be the new one on the block. And you walk up and they've all been together. They all know each other. They've worked together many times and you're just new and they all look at you. And they don't know if they're going to like you, if you're going to be good, or if they're going to think you're lousy, or maybe you're going to get fired, which could have happened. Um, and so that was quite an that was quite a moment. So when I sat down at the lunch table with all of them, they put a big box in front of me that had a bow on it. And so I took the bow off the box and opened it up, and it was from John Ford and John Wayne, and in it was all kinds of liniment, band-aids, ointments, um, Vaseline, all kinds of things. And it was all for saddle sores. <laughs> they knew where I had been. <laughs> they knew the whole story. And they were right. I had the worst sores from that 24 hours of intensive training that I went through. That I was, all I could do was sit there and laugh because they, they knew that I was kidding, that I had told them. I knew how to write it, and I didn't. Wow, that's the, it those was, are. It was a, it was a wonderful experience. Those are and great, they, great memories. Oh yeah, and they assigned two men, two stunt men to me, and that's for insurance. That you know they insure an actor for a lot of money, and they don't want you to fall off the horse or, you know, hit a tree or whatever. And so whenever I was in the saddle. These two men, Fred, um, uh, Hightower and Freddie Kennedy, and they rode with me, one on one flank and the other on the other back flank. And I, where, if wherever you see me in the movie, you'll see them if you know what they look like. They're right behind me all the time. And when we swam the horses through and I slipped on the muddy bank, my horse slipped. They were right there to push the horse up the hill. So yeah, I remember. Were, I, re I remember that moment too, because there is a moment where you're you're having trouble navigating that bank. Yeah, um, that's right. Do you remember the premiere of the film and your first time seeing it? Do I remember what? I'm the, sorry. Pre the premiere. Oh, the premiere. Yes, it was in New York, and uh, John Wayne was there. William Holden was there. My parents were there, which was very exciting. And uh, yeah, that was it was it was a great moment. And all the people outside the theater. So I don't recall the name of the theater in New York where it premiered. But that was, oh, gosh, what a moment that was. And great for my parents. Oh, sure, sure. Now, you mentioned uh, your grandfather. I know that your dad was a pharmacist. Was your grandfather mm -hmm. a rancher? No, he was he was from Ireland, and so was my grandmother. They they came over through uh, Philadelphia, and the only job they could get because it was Irish need not apply, so they they worked the railroad across the Northern Divide and the Great Northern, and they ended up in Whitefish, Montana, which was a housing town. And then my grandparents got a job working for the Park Service 
And so they lived up in Glacier National Park. So when I spent time with them, I, my daughter saw a movie was about uh, two grizzly bears. It was an older grizzly bear who adopted a little orphaned grizzly cub. And it's a wonderful movie, and it's all shot in Glacier National Park on the Montana side and on the Canadian side. And so when the movie was over, my daughter turned to me and she said, oh, mom, you were Heidi. And I was like the book Heidi with her grandfather in the Swiss Alps. And my grandfather was like that, but he worked for the Park Service. And so did my grandma. Got it. Got it. They were kind of official greeters of Glacier National Park. Now, when you arrived on the Horse Soldiers, you were not a member of the Ford Company because you were the newbie. And yet after the movie, after the movie's release, John Ford comes back to you to be in Sergeant Rutledge. Now, how did that happen? Uh, It happened because of him and also because we went through a great tragedy together, uh, which bonded us forever. Uh, Freddie Kennedy, one of the two stuntmen who always rode with me, was a wonderful little chubby cutest man in the world and he had half of a finger on his left hand his pointer finger and he used to stand behind the camera and put that half of a finger up to his nostril so it looked like his whole finger was up his nostril i mean he and they short sheeted my bed they did everything but they they were fun and we all enjoyed each other tremendously and so the very last shot of the location in Louisiana, uh, John Wayne came to me and he said, Connie, Freddie is going to do a last jump over that fence and he will be shot and he's going to do a simple shoulder fall into that fire. We want you to run in. We're not going to say cut. Pappy won't say cut until you run in and give him a kiss on the cheek and it's going to embarrass him in front of the entire company. So I said, okay. So I stood by the camera and Freddie rode in, jumped over the fence, fell into the fire. And I ran in. And as I picked him up, it was like a thousand bones crunching in my hand. And I realized that he had broken his neck. And somewhere there's a piece of film of that moment. But he, they picked him up immediately and we put him in a truck and we raced to the hospital with Johnny Veach and myself, and uh, somebody drove, and we had him in the back of the truck, but we got in there and he was gone. So that was a horrible tragedy, because John Ford loved his stuntmen, and we all loved Freddie, and to have him leave us like that on in the last shot was just such a tragedy. And uh, so... John Ford and I were deeply bonded because of that. And so then when he was planning his next film, he just said, you're, you're in this film. So that's how it happened. As I think, as I recall, Ford was, it it was at this film or Mr. Roberts earlier. He, I know that he, his wife passed away too. He was dealing with that trauma. Uh, but I don't know if it was during the Horse Soldiers. Do you recall? Whose wife passed away? John Ford? No, his wife, She he preceded her in death. Okay, so maybe it was some, was he married yeah, a number of times? Oh, I don't know. I'm trying to remember. It, it may, it may have, because I know that on Mr. Roberts, which was shot four years before the Horse Soldiers, he shared directing yeah. duties with Mervyn Leroy, and I think he had to leave mm-hmm. because of a family emergency. That may have may have been part of it. So he he gets you to come on Sergeant Rutledge, and you got to work with a couple more of my favorite actors. First of all, you got to work with Jeffrey Hunter, who oh, was and he president. was wonderful. Yeah, there was a gentleman. I mean, he was just so lovely, sweet. Wonderful, good actor, professional. I mean, you just couldn't say enough nice things about him. He was lovely, and, and that you... was an interesting. Go ahead. That I'm sorry. was an interesting 
that was an interesting film to make because Pappy Ford really wanted to make that film. And uh, he told me once, he said, you know, everybody thinks they can, they can trick me because I have a stack of scripts beside my bed. And he said, they always think I'm going to take the top script off and I'm going to read it. And that's the way they get me to read their scripts. And he said, but I fool them. I take the one on the bottom. And so he happened, I, I'm sure somebody, I'm sure his wife had figured that one out too. But he, he anyway took the script from the bottom and it was Buffalo Soldiers. And then it became Sergeant Rutledge. And it was about the Buffalo Soldiers who were black men who had been freed after the Civil War. And they were absorbed into the cavalry and they had a cavalry unit. And in history, they were some of the bravest cavalry soldiers in the history of the United States. So the Buffalo soldiers that they got to work in Sergeant Rutledge were like Rayford Johnson. They got uh, UCLA football team, black men, uh, and of course, Woody Strode, who is the star of the film, too. And he was so wonderful. That was a big year for Woody because not only is he in Sergeant Rutledge, but he is in Kirk Douglas. He's with Kirk Douglas and Spartacus. And that's uh, right. Very good. And John uh, Gavin. I'm sorry. I'm with John Gavin, of course. And John, and John Gavin. Now, had you already met John? No, I didn't know him then. You didn't know him then. So you didn't <laughs> know the Julius Caesar of that movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, another person on Sergeant Rutledge, and by the way, everybody who, if you've not seen Sergeant Rutledge, this is one of the lesser known Fords, and it's definitely worth viewing because it's a revisionist Western. It's not a typical Western. Uh, the, the Native Americans, I'm not calling them Indians, I'm calling them Native Americans, are treated with dignity <laughs> and the the presence of, as as Connie mentions, the Black troops is very important. So this was a, a Western of a different flavor and a good one. Um, but I also noticed she's in the film briefly, but you got a chance to work with Billy Burke. Oh, God, yes. What an adventure that was. She was so cute. And her daughter brought her to the studio whenever she worked. And she had the dressing room next to mine. And they would set up her dressing room and they, they had a, a table, a square table, like a card table, but it was sturdier than that. But they put an oilcloth cover on it. And then they would put out a little jar of peaches and something else. I mean, it was all perfectly done. And when she had her lunch, she would sit and she would be so charming and talk that she had very delicate hands. I mean, she was, she was really Billy Burke. And when she got in front of the camera, we all laughed because she couldn't remember her lines. She would stand there and with Willis Boucher and it, she would say, you know, whatever the lines were and she couldn't remember them and somebody would prompt her and so on. When the red light went on and the word action went, she suddenly came alive. She knew every word and she just stole the scene from anybody who was in that scene with her. You just couldn't, you, you couldn't keep up with her. You, you mean she didn't, she, come, and, she, she didn't come to work in a bubble? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, she was so cute. And there was another actor who will remain nameless, but who was not in our film. But he was at Warner Brothers. And he would come in every morning and he would drive a sports car in and scream it on the gravel and get out and slam the door and come in. And if you were sitting at the mirror, he would stand right behind you and he'd say, good morning, darling. He never looked at you. He looked at himself in the mirror. He was just preening and carrying on. And we all just thought he was such a character. So we talked Billy Burke into sitting in the chair. She was sitting in the chair, he's like 85 years old, sitting there, and he walked in and he went through the whole scenario and said, good morning, darling, how are you today? And so on. 
never looked at her, never realized that sitting there was an 80-year-old woman. And of course, he would never have acknowledged or known that it was Billy Berg. But that was, so she was up to a good joke that she, she was a character. Oh, sure, sure. And I kept, I, I kept thinking, gosh, this daughter who brings her in is Flo Ziegfeld's daughter. You know, the history that walks through the door with Billy Burke was just overwhelming. Well, it was like Horse Soldiers Hold Home Week, because not only did you have Willis Bushy, you got Carlton Young and you got uh, Judson Pratt, all from the Horse Soldiers. Judson uh, Pratt, right. Judson yeah, Pratt. Oh, that whole, yeah. he, he was, that whole company. The only one who wasn't there was Ward Bond. He wasn't in that movie. Right, right, of course. So we change uh, tact. Um, you finish your Ford work, and then you go to work for another famous director, another one known for its his unique personality, who's Sam Fuller. How did you meet Sam yeah. Fuller? Well, actually, my ex-husband knew him, and Barry Sullivan, and they took me to a party at Sam Fuller's house one night, and I met him. And then he wanted me to be in a film, and then he wrote The Naked Kiss for me. And uh, he was he was quite he was he was unique, and I loved Sammy. And Sammy was so gifted. He wrote, he produced, he directed, and uh, he was totally uninhibited. So he, like in The Naked Kiss, there are those wonderful little children. He got on the floor and he was a child when he was directing them. And he was wonderful. He was magical. Um, very different from John Ford and the opposite. John Ford stopped and had tea in the afternoon and it was all very genteel and uh, well thought out. Sammy was was a more raw experience. And he had a gun that had blanks in it, but every now and then he would shoot off the gun and the blanks go off. And I asked him, I said, why do you do that? He said, got your attention, didn't it? So when he felt that he needed to get every needed attention, he shot that gun off. Before he wrote Naked Kiss for You, you have a role in Shock Corridor. And I uh, I yes. believe that you play a stripper who has a very interesting dance. And you did. is it true that you went to some exotic clubs to see the strippers? I went to the, they, it was on Santa Monica Boulevard, and I went to see, it was called uh, The Pink Pussycat. And I went there to see what they did. So uh, that was an experience in itself. Again, Miss Whitefish Montana was sitting there thinking, oh my God, look where I am. Well, you didn't go but by yourself, very though. Oh, no. No, I went with a an army of people. <laughs> but it was it was an experience. But you know, you can't play something if you don't know what it is. So I felt justified in going and sitting there and watching what happened. And sure. it was helpful. Sure. Uh I saw the Naked Kiss recently. I just I had not seen it in many years. And um uh, it's a pretty intense movie. It's it's uh, it's you know it's pure Fuller. He does does present the edge to it, and I thought that uh, you had some challenges as an actress, and I thought you did very well. Well, thank you. It was uh, it, it's amazing to me now when I go to a young film producer or directors, especially directors, to their office for a meeting. They want to talk about Sam Fuller. They they really don't want to talk about anything before that. This Sam Fuller is there. There they they worship him, and uh, that always amazed me. And the Naked Kiss is everybody's favorite film. Why do you think? Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's a little bit of what you said in the beginning, the dark side of life is more appealing today somehow than that other side, which was the big horses and the civil war and 
epic films. It is they they love this dark side. And also he was very innovative. When the film opens and it's a handheld camera on the character I played, Kelly, and she's a prostitute and she is beating up her her procurer. Uh, and it's the very uh, electrifying scene it was then, and it still is today, where you have that handheld camera, which is right in the middle of the punches. So you feel you're, you're getting the punches. And uh, you feel very much involved in a, in a third dimension way in that film, in that moment. And in fact, on the Young Sheldon, the TV show, mm-hmm. they, they had Young Sheldon watching that scene uh, during the show. And I think as Annie Potts' grandmother came in and caught him looking at what she thought was uh, improper television. And I get, I get more residuals from that show, which I wasn't <laughs> even in, but they show the film. Yeah, so well, that's true. It's, fir- it's that's, been an, yeah. It's, it's been an interesting experience having been in, the, in that film. Uh, well, they also... And the, I was just going to say... I was going to say... Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say that at Sammy's Memorial, which Curtis Hansen organized at the Director's Guild, um, people came and the actors kind of all sat together and uh, we all kind of shared the same feeling that we had no idea these films were going to be this important. That when we made them, we didn't feel that. And Sam's popularity, his the quality of his work just grew and grew and grew over the years. So it's amazing. Absolutely. I, I think I first discovered him uh, when I saw the steel helmet uh, at my local right. theater and, you know, the, one of the first Korean War movies. And he I think that uh, when you think of Sam Fuller, you think of the word maverick, you know, a guy who kind of mm-hmm. marched to his own mm-hmm. drummer and did not suffer fools gladly right. and would work in the studio system at times, did some terrific studio pictures, but also did some amazing independent movies. Now, tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell me about how you met John Gavin. Uh, John Gavin, I met uh, when I first came to Hollywood to meet Mr. Cohn. And I had met Jimmy McHugh, who was a songwriter uh, on the sunny side of the street. Don't blame me. Interestingly enough, I sing don't blame me in Bring Your Smile Along. Um, Anyway, he had met me in New York. He saw me at the St. Regis. And he said, if you ever come to Hollywood, please call me. And then he sent me an arrangement of one of his songs, which I used in my future act. And so when I came, I called him and he said, I'm giving a party today at my house on Sierra Drive in the flats of Beverly Hills for Luella Parsons, and who was the Hollywood columnist and very important at that time. So he said, would you like to come to the party? And I thought, oh, gosh, that would be so much fun to go to a Hollywood party. And so I went and it was an afternoon at at his house. And I saw I saw John Wayne walk through the door. I saw Jimmy Stewart walk through the door. I saw uh, Gary Cooper. I mean, they were all there. And I must have been standing in the middle of the garden with my mouth open and a man in a white suit and all white and his lady friend was in a white suit with a gold, uh, a gold hat sitting on her head that I remember. And they beckoned to me. He said, why don't you come over here and stand with us? So I went over and stood by the edge of the pool with this couple and he introduced himself and it was Aaron Spelling and Karen, Carolyn Jones. So oh, wow. over the years, over the years, nobody had a better friend than I did with Aaron Spelling. He was so wonderful all those years. But anyway, so I was standing with them and just Miss Whitefish gawking at every movie star that I saw. And Jimmy McHugh came over to me. And he said, would you like to meet my godson? And I said, okay. 
So he took me out on the front porch, and it was now probably five o'clock in the afternoon when the golden sun is starting to set in Beverly Hills, and the shadows are long, and it's just a beautiful moment in time just before that sunset. And he took me out on the front porch, and there stood this very handsome young man and this beautiful woman. And he introduced me to John Gavin and his fiancee, Cicely. So they said hello, and they walked down the walk. There was a powder blue Cadillac convertible sitting at the end of the walkway in the street. And they walked down and they got into that powder blue Cadillac convertible, drove up into the sunset as they went up the street. And I turned to Mr. McHugh and I said, those are the two most beautiful people I have ever seen in my life. And so I went back to New York and then I got married and um, oh, I made the horse soldiers. And then after the horse soldiers and I got married and one night my husband came home and he said, you know, I've, I've invited a very good friend of mine to dinner tonight with his wife. And I said, terrific. So he told me who they who was coming, and I thought, oh, my gosh. And when they walked in the door, they didn't remember me, but I certainly remembered them. And I kidded my husband for many years that he never remembered meeting me, but I sure remembered meeting him. And then they, our lives went on, and I divorced, went to New York, and started doing Broadway shows. And then they divorced out here, and then... They would both, they were wonderful friends, and they would come to see my children in New York and see me. And then eventually he and I started going out. So that's how I met him. What year What year did you get married? Uh, we got married in 1974. I have, I so have had we, one brush with him. It was not, well, simply as a researcher because... I've written several books on the James Bond movies. And according to oh. my research in 1971, I believe it was 71. Yes, Diamonds Are Forever, that Cubby Broccoli exactly. actually signed John to play Bond. Exactly. I was sitting there when he was reading the paper, and he, he, he because he'd been signed to play James Bond, and he was reading the paper and he put the paper down and he said, I'm not going to be James Bond. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, in this column, it says Sean Connery is getting a divorce. Well, he's going to need more money and he's going to do another James Bond. And that's exactly what happened. But, you know, I get residuals still. Every time Diamonds Are Forever plays, I get a residual. For him. Really? How is that? Because he was signed to a contract. I mean, they literally, he was signed. And so uh, I, I, in, in the small print, I guess it's there. But every time that movie plays, a, a residual check arrives. There've only, as far I as there have only been two occasions where an American was considered. One course is john and then uh, years later james brolin of all people uh, uh was also oh, i didn't know that role. yeah also offered the role really uh, which it seemed like an interesting choice and not a, not a, a little bit surprising but uh it, there's the, the thing is that bond needs to be a commonwealth actor so it's, it would be surprising to cast an american in the role and when they first even yeah. before even before sean connery the studio was saying can you can you cast Cary Grant? Can you cast, uh, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart? I always laugh when I hear the name Jimmy Stewart. Can you picture himself introducing himself as, oh, that's so funny. Well, Connie, this has been so wonderful. I mean, I have oh, I've had loved to it. prod you. You have everything's flowing out of you like uh, the Mississippi. <laughs> oh, well, I enjoyed it tremendously. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to give a little wrap up here. Uh, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. Uh, I'm Steve Rubin, your host. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. 
We've had a delightful conversation with Constance Towers, who will always be available to you on screen. Uh, just look for some terrific movies. And we didn't even get a chance to talk about your stage career, but maybe some other time we can do a little talk about that as well. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you so much.